Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey guys, Ryan here, and I've got some exciting news. We've recently partnered with Alien Coffee Bean to bring you the official Somewhere in the Skies coffee. That's right. What better way to listen to the show than with a delicious cup of Somewhere in the Skies? It's a perfect dark roast for those who love an earthly, full-bodied smoothness. These delicious beans come from the island of Sumatra in Indonesia. We've worked very closely with Alien Coffee Bean to make sure this roast was exactly what we wanted it to be. So I hope you enjoy And I hope you'll pick up a bag of Summer in the Skies coffee today. Now available within the United States, with plans to go international in the very near future. Head on over to aliencoffeebean.com and use the promo code SOMEWHEREESKIES10 to get 10% off your order. Again, that's aliencoffeebean.com. Remember, keep your feet on the ground, but never stop drinking Somewhere in the Skies. Hey guys, Ryan hopping in for just a moment before this week's episode to thank our new Patreon subscribers. My special thanks goes out to Linda G, Michael E R, Stefan S, Gerald G, James W, Jessica F, Carmel C, and Ben G. You are the reason the show continues to grow. So if you'd like to help out the show on a monthly basis, you give what you think the show is worth. Every penny goes right back into making the podcast something we can all truly be proud of as we continue to explore the mysteries that lay somewhere in the skies. To learn more and to join, visit patreon.com slash somewhere skies. And now we travel to the new Somewhere in the Skies headquarters, the United Kingdom. You'll hear little-known close encounter cases along with multi-witnessed UFO sightings. I hope you enjoy the British UFO invasion. Drop the beat! This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague. According to a report from the National UFO Reporting Center, in the early hours of June 30th, 1982, at around 3 a.m. in a small village near Cornwall, England, an anonymous gentleman lay in bed with his wife in their secluded cottage. On this particular evening, the witness had awakened for no apparent reason, at least that he was initially aware of. Then, as he came to his senses, he noticed a light in the bedroom, similar to that of several candles burning. Realizing something was not right about the situation, he began to turn from lying on his side to his back so that he could view the part of the room where the light seemed to be coming from. When he did so, he was confronted with a sight that he simply wasn't expecting. There, right in the front of him at the foot of the bed, was a bizarre creature that he would later describe as being, quote, not of this world. This creature just stood there, motionless, and staring straight at him. Then, very slowly, the creature blinked its eyes, and then maintained its stare once more. Despite being shocked at what he was seeing, the witness recalled feeling a sense of calm and peace running through him, 
later elaborating that it was almost as if the creature was transmitting these feelings to him through some sort of telepathy. After a few moments, he sat up slightly where he lay, a barrage of thoughts rumbling through his mind in spite of the calmness that he felt. Was he still dreaming and not really seeing this creature at all? Was it some bizarre and unexplained trick of the light? And if it was real, who was this entity? Or what? Where did it come from? And why was it here? With these thoughts in mind, he reached to his arm and pinched himself several times. But the creature remained where it was, looking straight at him. The witness continued to watch this bizarre figure as it in turn looked back at him. Although there was no physical signs, it appeared very much to the witness as though the creature was smiling, and for the first time, he realized the light appeared to come from this strange entity, particularly from its face. After several moments, the witness quickly scanned each side of the room in case there was anything else in there with him. However, aside from himself, his still-sleeping wife, and this mysterious entity, the room was empty. The witness turned his attention back to the creature, who remained at the foot of the bed. He would describe the entity as about four feet tall, having a slender body and gray skin. Its head was disproportionately large, and it had deep black eyes. At this point, the witness turned towards his wife, realizing that unless she saw the creature as well, nobody would believe this bizarre tale. He proceeded to try to gently wake her. She stirred slightly and mumbled something before turning over in an attempt to go back to sleep. But the witness persisted. His wife eventually began coming around. However, as she was waking, the witness noticed that the light was fading. When he turned around, the creature was gone. He checked his watch, and it was approaching 3.20 a.m. This bizarre stare-off of sorts had lasted just shy of 20 minutes, even though it only felt like moments. And with that, the incident of this staring creature was over and remains unexplained. According to an article titled Recent Contacts in Landing Reports by Brinsley Lepore Trench, in the July 1958 edition of Flying Saucer Review, James Cook had an encounter with a UFO and its occupants at around 2 a.m. on September 7, 1957, in Runcorn, Cheshire. It was an account that has been dismissed by many UFO researchers over the years, and perhaps with good reason, given the rather outlandish nature of it, as you'll soon find out. According to the report, Cook claimed to have received telepathic communication to leave his home and go to a particular hill in the town, which he duly did. Almost as soon as he arrived, he witnessed a large craft heading toward him, eventually hovering over a short distance from the ground, approximately 60 feet away from him. As he watched this hovering object, he noticed how it changed color, going from blue to white, then back to blue, then to a dark red. Suddenly, a set of stairs slid out from the side of the object, stretching to the ground. A voice then appeared in his mind, telling him to step onto the ramp and to enter the craft. He did so, with no sense of fear or trepidation, and stepped inside this otherworldly spaceship. He immediately noticed that the interior of the craft was lit up and glowing, as if the light was coming from the walls of the craft themselves. Before he could take in any further details, the voice appeared again and asked him to remove his clothes and slip into a strange plastic suit. And again, he complied with the instruction before moving on further inside the craft. He arrived in a room with around 20 humanoids inside, each around 6 feet tall and wearing the same blue uniform. The next thing he realized, the craft was moving, and they were traveling 
into outer space. He claimed to have been taken to their home planet, which he said was called Zomdik, which he claimed had yellow vegetation instead of green, and was ruled by wise seniors. He was then returned to Earth after this journey, and was away for 45 hours in total. How credible we should take Cook's account is obviously open for debate. It is perhaps worth mentioning, however, though, that Cook would establish the Church of Aquarius shortly after this incident. From here, he would claim to receive telepathic messages from these alleged alien visitors. The foundation lasted around a decade before he simply vanished from the public eye. And thus came an end to the contactee story of James Cook. According to a report in Volume 6, Issue 5 of the Bufora Journal on May 15, 1973, in Sandown on the Isle of Wight, seven-year-old Faye was playing with a friend on the golf links when a sudden siren cut through the air. The pair listened for a moment before then following the sound in an attempt to locate where it was coming from and what it was. They eventually came to a swampy meadow. Once there, the sound stopped. The two children decided to cross over the brook using a footbridge and take a look at the other side. As they did so, however, a strange figure suddenly appeared from underneath it. Although things were happening quickly, it appeared to the children that this creature had a book in its hands, that it temporarily dropped into the water before retrieving it again. This strange and clumsy creature was approximately seven feet tall and was wearing a yellow pointed hood that appeared to have wooden antenna on the sides. Faye would further recall that the creature had triangular markings for eyes, a brown square nose, and motionless lips. It also wore blue gloves that appeared to show only three fingers. As they watched, the creature made its way to what the children described as a metallic hut with no windows. The creature went inside temporarily before returning holding something that looked like a microphone in its hand. At this point, the two children were approximately 150 feet from the creature. They watched as it raised the apparent microphone to its mouth and asked if they were still there. It appeared to the two witnesses that the tone of the creature was friendly, and so they began forward towards it. They noticed that the creature appeared to be writing something in a large notebook, which it then showed to them. It said, quote, Hello, I am all colors, Sam. End quote. The creature then spoke to them directly, although without the aid of the microphone and without moving its mouth. Although its speech was a little broken and unclear, the children could understand him. They also noticed that the clothing on this creature appeared torn, and they asked it why it was ripped, and if this creature was a man. When the creature replied no, the children then asked if it was a ghost. This time, the creature replied that he wasn't, but that, quote, in an odd sort of way, I am. End quote. When they pressed as to what this creature was, it simply replied, quote, you know, end quote. Following this exchange, the creature invited the two children into its metallic hut, which they entered via a lift-up opening. Once inside, they could see that it was made up of two different floors and contained what appeared to be simple wooden furniture. There were also strange dials on the walls as well as some kind of heater. The children spoke with the creature for a little while longer before finally going on their way. When they saw a man on their way back home, they blurted out to him that they had seen a ghost. But just exactly what this ghost was remains a mystery. And this remains one of the oddest close encounter experiences ever to come out of the United Kingdom. 
At approximately 2 a.m. on an August night in 1976, just outside of Leeds in West Yorkshire, another little-known close encounter unfolded. According to a report in Volume 15, Issue 1 of UFO magazine, mechanic Jen Sidlecki had returned home from working late at a car garage and was so exhausted that he went straight to bed. A short time later, however, a strange flash lit up his entire bedroom, causing him to leap from his bed and head towards the window. He first thought that there was an explosion that had happened at the garage. However, when he peered outside, he was shocked to see a bizarre saucer-shaped craft hovering above the ground. The craft appeared to be in distress and had a noticeable wobble. Jan quickly dressed and rushed outside. He headed in the same direction as the craft as it descended over a nearby field and landed. The craft had three legs that protruded from the underside. Jan remained where he was and watched. A moment later, a tube-like shape emerged from the craft and stretched to the ground. With the underside of the craft glowing, the tube began to open. A few moments later, two humanoid figures stepped out of the tube and stood in front of Jan. Both were around four feet tall, and Jan could see that they were signaling him to come closer. Cautiously, he did. He could hear the creatures talking to each other in a language unknown to him. He further noticed that each wore what appeared to be mittens on their hands, while on their chests they wore a square patch that was full of different colored buttons and switches. He watched as both of these humanoids were manipulating the switches on these chest panels. Then, suddenly, they began speaking in English as if the chest device was somehow translating what they were saying. They went on to inform Jan that they had trouble with their ship and had to carry out repairs. He noticed when they spoke that their voices had a tinny sound to them. Jan was then invited on board the craft while the repairs were being carried out. An invitation he accepted. As soon as he stepped inside, he was met with an odor that reminded him of rotting grass. Regardless, he followed the two humanoids and eventually found himself in what appeared to be the main central room of the craft. Around the edge of the room, there was a small trough of water around two feet wide, and on top of this water was what appeared to be a strange green grassy vegetation that seemed to grow on top of the water. He noticed several figures, slightly different from the first humanoids, who appeared to be engaged with the said repair huddled around an area on the far side of the room. From what Jan could see, they were gathered around a circular container that had a black bubbling liquid inside, and from which occasional flashes of red light jumped into the air. Before Jan could take in any more details, however, a sudden football-shaped orange light appeared in the room and began darting from one place to another. As it did so, commotion broke out inside the craft, and one of the humanoids told Jan that he would have to leave, telling him once he was outside the ship, he should run as far away from the craft as he could. Jan did so, and as soon as his feet touched the ground, he ran as fast as he could. As he did so, he heard a high-pitched whistling noise which increased in volume and intensity. When he turned around, the object was rising into the night sky, with what looked like red flames coming from the underside. Soon, the craft disappeared out of sight, leaving Jan with a lifetime of memories of that bizarre day and the encounter with the humanoids in West Yorkshire. And he always thought, huh, maybe I could have helped them repair the craft. Unfortunately, he'll never truly know. Another remarkable account occurred in the town of Gateshead in northern England in August of 1979. The incident was documented in the book The Paranormal Files by C.J. Austin and D.W. Morris. According to the account, in the early hours one morning, the witness, referred to as Carol W., laid awake in her bed, 
waiting for her husband to return home from work on the late shift. She had brought a cup of tea upstairs with her in an attempt to nurse a toothache which had prevented her from falling asleep. Suddenly, a strange and intense bright red light appeared through the bedroom curtains, causing her to immediately leave her bed and rush to the window to see what was causing this mysterious glow. When she looked outside, she saw a disc-shaped object hovering over the street, right outside of her home. This object sparkled with multicolored lights, as it remained motionless a short distance above the rooftops. Then, without warning, it simply shot off into the sky and disappeared in a flash. Unsure of what exactly she had seen, Carol retreated from the window and returned to bed. Several moments later, however, an exact miniature replica of the otherworldly craft entered her room through the window, casting off several sparks from its exterior as it did so. It moved over her bed and hovered above it for several moments. When it did this, Carol began to feel a bizarre sensation throughout her body. The object then moved away from the bed and left the room through the open bedroom door at a considerable pace. This strange craft returned around two weeks later. This time, Carol's husband was at home, and she immediately called out to him. However, by the time he'd arrived, the object had disappeared back out the bedroom window. Carol was understandably shaken by the events and left with such an anxious feeling that the next time her husband was working the late shift, she opted to stay at her mother's house. However, the events were about to take an even stranger turn. After retiring to bed on the night in question at her mother's house, Carol suddenly awoke at 4 a.m. She immediately noticed the strange miniature UFO hovering over her. Of even more concern, though, was the fact that she was unable to move. It was only after several moments that she realized there were also several small humanoids in the room. These small entities were around two feet tall, wore strange white suits, and had hair that appeared like doll's hair. Carol watched helplessly as they began approaching the bed, making strange clicking sounds as they moved. They proceeded to perform some kind of examination on her before retreating and disappearing. These small entities would continue appearing randomly for around two months, and then all activity abruptly ceased, and Carol never encountered them again. What they were and what they wanted would remain a mystery that Carol could never truly understand, leaving her with a lifetime of questions of the doll-haired beings in their mini-saucer. Of course, as intriguing as these close encounters with apparent humanoid aliens are, there are just as many sightings of strange lights and mysterious objects that are on record from the United Kingdom. One of these incidents may even have been a UFO crash. On the evening of January 5th, 1965, just outside Cambridge in eastern England, local resident Max Baran witnessed something mysterious moving through the sky and fall to the ground. However, rather than be a meteor, as we might suspect, Max would go on to give a precise description of what would appear to be a solid, intelligently designed object. In a report to the local meteorological office, he would state that, quote, while the object was in the sunlight, it gave the appearance of a curved object. It moved much too fast to have been simply a parachute. It eventually disappeared beyond the horizon, but was most definitely moving downward, end quote. Max's report would eventually find its way to the offices of the Ministry of Defense, who instructed the local police to investigate the sighting and then report back to them. This, among other lines of inquiry, resulted in an 11-page report that was only declassified in the mid-1990s. The report would state that as well as instructing the local police, the MOD contacted various departments across the armed forces, including the Royal Navy. Ultimately, these various departments and organizations 
were unable to come up with any plausible explanation for what Max had reported. Interestingly, this case only came to light when it was declassified as part of the UK's 30-year rule, meaning all documents, whether highly classified or not, have to be placed in the public domain. That the government chose to hold on to this until it was forced to disclose it is perhaps an indicator of the importance and potential of the sighting. And of course, there could always be the possibility that further information and details on this incident remain locked away from the public, as are the answers for Max on what he had seen that night. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In 1986, several particularly intriguing sightings are on record. On the evening of June 15th, in Shardtown, in Somerset, at around 7 p.m., the 16-year-old witness was playing in the local school fields with friends when they noticed a ball of light moving incredibly fast above them. They all stopped what they were doing in order to watch this aerial display. They all agreed that they were not looking at a satellite, nor was it any type of conventional aircraft. They would recall that it was around four to five times brighter than the brightest star, and was approximately five to seven miles above them. They were all shocked at what they were seeing, and one of the group even ran back home because they were terrified. The remaining friends remembered they had a rabbiting light with them, and so proceeded to flash it at the object repeatedly. As a side note, guys, as we've learned from Rob Christofferson of the Our Strange Skies podcast, do not shine flashlights at UFOs. The light was at first unresponsive. It did, though, come to a sudden halt in the sky around 30 minutes after they'd first noticed it. The group of friends continued to watch it, amazed when a second light shot out of the end of it, and began to move around at tremendous speeds. Then another light shot out of the glowing object, then a third, and a fourth. Until eventually, they had lost count as to how many lights had been shot out of this object, guessing it was anywhere from 30 to 50 in total. These emerging lights were no brighter than the stars in the sky, but they didn't flicker as the stars did, and so they were easy for the group to pick them out. What's more, they moved across the sky at various speeds. After several minutes, these secondary lights began returning to the initial glowing object, one by one, until they had all disappeared, leaving the single, larger light hovering for several more moments, before simply fading away. With that, the group left the field and returned to their respective homes. Although they had no idea about what they had seen, they knew it was something very much out of the ordinary. However, the following evening, the main witness would find themselves once more looking at a true aerial anomaly. 
This time, the witness was outside their home, and the events from the previous evening were still very much in their mind. As such, they were staring at the sky in case they witnessed anything further to suggest this was the same object. To their disbelief, they did see something else. A large, round sphere that appeared to be an upturned hot air balloon of some sort. There were multiple colored flashing lights around the exterior of this object. Realizing the object was likely not a conventional aircraft or a hot air balloon, the witness ran back inside the house to grab the binoculars and tell their father to come outside to see it as well. When they viewed the object through the binoculars, they realized that it was indeed something truly strange and definitely a solid object. Although they couldn't see exactly what the shape was, there appeared to be panels in between the lights. The object remained in sight for around 10 minutes. Interestingly, only hours before the first sighting the group had in the field, at around 12.30pm in Oxford, a similar sighting of a sphere-shaped object was reported. According to the report, the witness was on their way to London and was stuck in traffic on Oxford High Street. As they sat in their motionless vehicle, their attention was captured by something in the sky that the witness at first thought was the moon. However, they quickly realized it wasn't the moon they were looking at at all, but some kind of white-colored sphere. It remained in sight for around 20 seconds, then accelerated away and disappeared into the distance. According to the files of the Cornwall UFO Research Group, at around 10pm on August 9, 2004, in St. Agnes Beacon, a couple were driving towards the beach when they noticed what they believed were the headlights of an approaching car. The witness's automatic reaction was to dip his own headlights. However, when he did so, he realized there was no oncoming vehicle. At the same time, the witness's wife saw a round glowing light about 350 feet away and around 170 feet in the air. They continued in the direction they were going, the object eventually passing directly over the top of them. As it did so, they could make out an inverted red-orange triangle just below the clouds. It was visible for no more than two seconds before disappearing once more. Several months later, at around 1am on October 17th, in Cheshire, a Liverpool resident, Paul Reason, was driving home with his wife after visiting friends for the evening. Their vehicle was the only one on the road. Suddenly, to their left, a bizarre vapor appeared, as if it was a suddenly appearing fog. However, unlike a normal fog, this misty substance remained in front of their car, appearing to travel at the exact same speed. The thought that some kind of vortex was forming right in front of them shot through Paul's mind and he told his wife to slow the car down so that they didn't drive into the strange mist. He could see something spinning within the mist, as well as strange blue flashes. Then, the mist transferred itself to the top of their car, the entire interior of the vehicle being lit up in blue. They continued driving, eventually turning down another road. The mist temporarily returned to the side of their vehicle before shooting off into the air. At this point, Paul opened the passenger window and peeked outside, looking directly up towards the glow. From this vantage point, he could see two rings that was lit up in blue inside smaller plasma-like teardrop shapes, chained together, spinning, and individually wobbling. The object remained with the vehicle until they reached the motorway, and then it finally disappeared. Although the witness reported the incident to several UFO organizations, as well as NASA, the incident was never truly explained. Just before 9pm on March 12, 2007, in the town of Swindon in southwest England, a 17-year-old Chris Morin spotted an unusual object overhead. According to a report, 
which received coverage on several local media platforms, the witness was walking near open ground when he noticed something out of the corner of his eye. He turned and noticed an oval-shaped object that was quite bright and was simply hanging in the sky. It was only visible for a matter of seconds before it zoomed off into the distance. Chris turned to the friends he was with and asked if they too had seen it. However, much to his dismay, they claimed they hadn't. Around an hour later, however, the object was seen again, and this time, all of them saw it. On this occasion, they were outside a public house when the object was once more visible in the night sky. The witness once more stated it was an oval shape, like a rugby ball. They also stated that it was seemingly completely silent, with no sound of engines or the usual rumbling sound that might often be associated with an aircraft moving at such a fast pace, a pace, incidentally, that appeared far too fast for anything the witnesses had seen previously. When the Ministry of Defense was asked to comment on the sighting following the publicity it received, they claimed that they had not received any reports of UFO sightings in the Swindon area on the night in question, and so could not comment further. And like most other reports throughout the United Kingdom, this incident remains unexplained. Perhaps one of the most widely cited events to have happened in Britain took place during a weekend in late April of 2008 in and around Torquay on the south coast of England. What at first appeared to be a random sighting of something strange by one family turned out, upon further investigation, to be a 48-hour period where multiple people reported seeing the same object moving very purposefully over the region. Even more interesting, these craft appeared to travel the exact same route each time they were witnessed, further suggesting a predetermined location and reason for their sudden appearance. The incidents were documented on several local media platforms at the time, and then reported to the National UFO Reporting Center, or Newfork. According to the witness who submitted the report to Newfork, after seeing something strange himself on the weekend in question, began to seek out, investigate, and log as many of the other sightings from other witnesses in the area as he could. Consequently, he had managed to compile a timeline of the events that unfolded. This first witness was, according to the report, an amateur photographer who unintentionally captured a photograph of the bizarre object at around 5.30 a.m. on Saturday, April 26, 2008. He was, however, involved in a sensitive community project as part of his work, and so wished to give his report anonymously. He claimed that on the morning in question, he was on his way to go fishing on a friend's boat at Brixham, a short distance from Torquay. As he was driving along the still quiet road, he decided to pull the car over and take a picture of the sunrise overlooking Tor Bay. A moment later, he took another picture, this time with a camera on a different exposure setting. He then went back on his way. He went out on his planned fishing trip, taking multiple other pictures during the day, one of which his friend requested a copy of. Upon arriving home, he began downloading the picture from his camera onto his computer. It was at this point that he saw the shot of the sunrise he had taken at the very start of the day, and it was then that he noticed a strange bright spot of light in the early morning sky. He knew that Venus was not visible at the time in the morning, so he quickly ruled that out. In fact, the more he looked at it, he realized the light appeared to be below the clouds, meaning that it was not any kind of celestial object, but something in the sky itself. When he enlarged the picture and zoomed in on the craft, he realized that it appeared solid and had a definite shape, like a squashed bell or a truncated triangle. 
It also appeared that there was a dark cross-shaped object at the leading edge of the object, and a cone-shaped tail suggesting that the object was moving when it was photographed. He then turned his attention to the second picture he'd taken only moments later. This time, the strange light was nowhere to be seen. He was almost certain that the first picture did not show a lens flare, and so he contacted the Cornwall UFO group, who would state that he had certainly photographed something of interest. When investigators visited the area where the photograph was taken, they noted that any aircraft of a terrestrial nature was easily heard, meaning it was unlikely that the strange light photograph belonged to a plane or a helicopter. This was, though, the first of many sightings to hit this region over the next 48 to even 72 hours. Later that day, at around 9.20 p.m., the compiler of the New Fork Report witnessed the object for the first time himself. He explained in the report how their lounge window looks out into the direction of Exeter Airport, which was a little over 20 miles away. Because of this, he and his wife were used to seeing airplanes coming and going at various altitudes and at all times of the day. More importantly, he noted that although they do sometimes see smaller aircraft using the air routes, they are always at such a low altitude that their engines, much like the larger commercial planes, could easily be heard. This was much the same for the police and the Coast Guard helicopters that often flew overhead. On this particular night, although there was still a little light left, dusk was rapidly approaching when the witness's wife noticed a strange light that appeared similar to a landing light of a low-flying aircraft. Although the witness noted there was something decidedly different about it, they continued to watch the object as it approached them at a relatively steady pace. The light remained a bright white color, although the witness noticed a fleck of red as it moved. He also noted the light appeared to be a solid object, possibly of diamond-shaped dimensions, and that it remained completely silent and contained no navigation lights. The object soon passed over the house, causing the pair to run to the other side of the property and view it from the backyard. It continued to move away from them, eventually disappearing behind the trees. Although he wasn't immediately aware of it, the witness's son also witnessed the object from his room. It was as they were discussing what they had seen when the witness's wife claimed that she could see another light heading in their direction. When they all looked at this second approaching light, they could see it was almost identical to the first one although it appeared slightly redder. It was heading toward them at the same speed as the first light, and eventually it also disappeared over the trees. Incidentally, the witness would later contact Exeter Airport to see if there were any landings scheduled during the time of their sightings. There were none. And when an airplane did fly by over the house around 30 minutes later, they could all clearly see its shape the lights of the cockpit, and could hear its engines. In short, whatever they had seen previously was not a conventional aircraft from the airport. Around 10 minutes later, at 9.30pm, another family witnessed what was likely to have been the very same objects. From their home, around three states away from the witness's house, the Webley family's encounter appears to offer corroboration of the main witness's sighting. According to their version of events, Mr. Webley was in his back garden burning rubbish when he noticed a strange glowing object heading in his direction at a steady but considerable pace. He immediately called to the rest of the family, who rushed into the backyard and witnessed the object also. They would later estimate that it was at an altitude of between 500 to 600 feet and had an orange-red glow to it. They reported that it stopped momentarily and hovered a short distance away before heading off into the distance and out of sight. Then, 
Two or three minutes later, a second object, almost identical to the first, appeared and followed the exact same course. It too came to a stop for several moments, and then it too went on its way, disappearing into the night sky. The main witness would also discover another family, who also wished to remain anonymous, who had a further sighting of what would appear to be the strange object in question. On the same night, at around 9pm, the witness claimed to have seen a bizarre-looking red object moving in the sky before coming to a brief stop. Several moments later, it shot off toward the Dartmouth area. Around an hour later, the witness's husband saw a very similar red light hovering in the night sky. It didn't make a sound and appeared to have come from the same direction as the object witnessed by his wife. Even more remarkable, this object appeared to be shining some kind of spotlight down toward the water below. After several moments, the light went out and the object headed off into the distance, eventually disappearing from sight. Despite the fact that it didn't make a noise, and that there didn't appear to be any kind of navigation lights, the witness simply put it down to being a police or rescue helicopter. However, when the witness checked the following morning with the Coast Guard if there had been any helicopter activity in the area the previous evening, he was assured that neither the Coast Guard or the police had been in the air at all that night. What's more, this family also had another encounter a little over 24 hours later, an encounter that would leave them feeling compelled to make a report to the local newspaper and that what they had witnessed was a little more out of the ordinary than any helicopter. At around 3.50 a.m. in the early hours of Monday, April 28th, the witness was unable to sleep and so got up to make her way to the bedroom window, which overlooks Tor Bay. This was something she often did when she struggled to sleep. Normally, the view was serene and peaceful. However, on this occasion, the witness was immediately drawn to a strange white object that appeared to be moving in wide circles, and was doing so at a significant rate of speed. She immediately called to her husband, waking him and urging him to come to the window. By the time he arrived, the object appeared to have moved a considerable distance out over the sea, still moving in the same purposeful circles. They would later describe the object as white, with an apparent cone-shaped tail. They watched for several more moments before it suddenly shot off into the distance, seemingly in the direction of Dartmouth. As it moved, it appeared to take on the shape of a truncated triangle. The couple were uncertain of what the object was, but were sure that it wasn't a helicopter or small aircraft. Just what was witnessed by multiple people during that 72-hour period remains unknown, almost a decade and a half later. It appears that what the witnesses saw during their respective sightings were all of the same object. And what's more, this object, rather than being taken by the wind and drifting aimlessly, were under some kind of intelligent control and had a predetermined route to follow and destination to arrive at. Was that intelligence human, perhaps testing an experimental aircraft? It is certainly a possibility. Or, given how the details of the sighting resonate with so many others around the world and across the decades, it is more likely that this intelligence could also be something non-human. While there hasn't been a repeat of that spring weekend in question, UFO sightings in and around the south coast of England continue to happen regularly, even today. There is a plethora of UFO incidents that could be, even in the internet age, in danger of falling through the cracks of time. And while we should perhaps treat some of these incidents more seriously than others, all of them are important to collect while we continue our search for just what lies behind the UFO and entity phenomena. 
We should also keep in mind that these sightings and encounters continue today. And while we might be closer, albeit minimally, to some form of disclosure from the government, what intelligence, if any, lies behind these UFOs remains almost as much of a mystery now as it did at the start of the modern UFO era. But only by preserving these stories throughout the United Kingdom, and ostensibly the world, can we begin to have a conversation about just exactly what extraordinary things may truly be out there, somewhere in our skies and beyond. This episode was co-researched and co-written by Marcus Loth. To learn more, visit ufoinsight.com. Please take a moment to rate and review Somewhere in the Skies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us gain visibility and find new listeners. Be sure to also subscribe to our very active YouTube channel, where most of our episodes are available in video format. You can also join our exclusive YouTube members channel, where you get bonus content and a behind-the-scenes look at how Somewhere in the Skies is made. You can subscribe through the link in our show notes. We're also on Twitter, at Somewhere Skies, and Instagram, at Somewhere Skies Pod. Thank you so much for listening, as always. And remember, keep your feet on the ground, but never stop searching. Somewhere in the skies. Skies is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.